Thanks for joining me again for another episode of Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. Today I'm speaking with an author I have worked with multiple times, Ryan Sterrett. Ryan's latest book is an interesting account of a unionist-turned-secessionist Catholic bishop, William Henry Elder. The book takes place during the Civil War in Mississippi. The book includes excerpts from the Bishop's Journal, complemented by journal and letter excerpts from by soldiers on the battlefield, giving the reader a view of both life on the front lines and the home front through journals from people living in war-torn Mississippi. It gives a view of effects of the war in both areas. We also see through the Bishop's eyes the changes that take place in Mississippi during the Siege of Jackson and Vicksburg and after capitulation of those cities. Keep in mind that during all of this, Bishop William Henry Elder would still be performing his duties of baptizing, preaching, performing marriages, confirming, comforting, and burying the dead. Author Ryan Starrett was born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. After a 10-year hiatus in Texas, he is back home in the Magnolia State where he enjoys a teaching career. Ryan, thanks for joining me. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How did you come across the story of Bishop Elder? I was working in the archives on a different topic the desegregation of the Catholic schools in Jackson. And then I stumbled across the diary of Bishop Elder. It had been unpublished. I started reading it, couldn't put it down, and then decided to switch stories. So I went from the 1960s to the 1860s. And who was Bishop Elder the man? Bishop Elder? He was a Catholic bishop from Maryland, and his first assignment is Natchez, in 18, Natchez Mississippi, in 1857. And he ended up staying through the 1870s, so he ushered the Catholic Church in Mississippi through the Civil War. Eventually, he ends up becoming the Archbishop of Cincinnati, but his formative years were in in uh, Mississippi. Yeah, and you not only have his journals and notes, but you also have letters and journal entries from those uh, from soldiers uh, writing from the front lines, and they can also run concurrent with the bishops' journals and those on the home front. Uh, it's given multiple viewpoints for what the bishop and his parishioners are experiencing, and he gives an all-encompassing view. How hard was it to gather all of this research and uh, write it out into the book? And did you get connected with anyone from the past? Like maybe uh, Frank, uh, and I hope I'm saying his name right, Frank uh, Riggi? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, he had some letters in the Bishop Elder file. Uh, the Jackson Diocese is really, really good. Uh, Mississippians really like their history. So both the diocesan archives and the state archives have just a plethora of information and old letter books and manuscripts. Uh, There's another really good writer named James Pilar, who wrote about the church in Mississippi from 1837 to 1865, and he he had already done a lot of the groundwork research. And so I went through his index and bibliography and found some sources he used, and then tried to go track down the originals. So how were you able to get the – when you see the bishop writing about uh, his recollection of hearing about battles, how were you able to go find the soldiers' stories of the battles too? or And then the people in the home front stories of the battles, how hard was that to match it up too? Or did you find that also in uh, other people's uh, research that had kind of paved the way for you to combine all these together? Well, a combination of both. Um, like I said, Pilar, I used his work cited a lot to track down the originals. And then there's a bunch of unpublished manuscripts and especially diaries down in the archives. A lot of the Civil War soldiers wrote home a lot, and a lot of that's been preserved. 
I assume their families handed over the letters uh, generations ago, and they found their way to the archives. And where are the archives at that you're using? Uh, both of them are downtown. The diocesan one is on in, on West Street in downtown Jackson, and the other's near the old Capitol building, also downtown Jackson. How quickly would war come to Mississippi's soil, and how quickly would the bishop's duties be intertwined with the war? Oh, the war in the West went downhill real quick. Uh, in the Eastern Front, it went on. It dragged on until it was undecided, really, until probably Gettysburg, maybe a little later. But the Battle of Shiloh happened pretty early on in the war on the Western Front. So Mississippi was doomed from the our defeat of almost at the beginning. New Orleans fell real early. And then, um, yeah, the Battle of Shiloh, the combination of those two had Mississippi and the Pincer Movement. And the state wasn't destined to last long, so... Bishop Elder was immediately thrust into the the thick of it. You know the Battle of Gettysburg really well, but the Battle of Vicksburg really split the Confederacy and the siege against uh, Vicksburg. When Vicksburg fell on July 4th, 1863, that really split the Confederacy in two. And people consider yeah. you know the high water mark at the Confederacy uh, uh, um, Cemetery Ridge when the uh, Pickett's Charge when the when the uh, when Pickett's brigade or division made it up to that certain point on the field. But Vicksburg falling really was the death knell, I think, some some other people think, for the Confederacy when the the loss of that Mississippi River and the loss of the Confederacy you know, has a hole there. Um, in the accounts of Emily Balfour and Mary uh, Lowborough, uh, during the siege of Vicksburg, are both interesting and humbling to read, and I say that because of what war did and does to a city, and uh, the people in the city, and the accounts of the hospital, and in, in that case, to a pe- uh, to a, a single person. Uh, Vicksburg had gone from being the Gibraltar of the West and a fine city uh, to where people were living in caves that they had carved themselves. How would the bishop approach a situation in his diocese like this? Well, he wasn't at Vicksburg because it was besieged for 47 days. He was down in Natchez and traveling along the outskirts of Vicksburg. Well, because of the siege, he couldn't get in. He only saw the aftermath about a month afterwards. But, I mean, how would he react to people in his—because they're, they're still in his diocese, correct? Right, correct. So what 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 actions would he go into, or what would he begin to do to prepare to oh, uh, try to help those people in that city? Right. Well, once he got in there and he saw the destruction, there was nothing he could do but but pastor them. And Bishop Elder saw himself as a member of an institution that was universal, that transcended South and North. So he saw himself as a shepherd to the Confederates, the Union soldiers, the slaves, the freed blacks, the rich, the poor. And so oddly, when he goes into Vicksburg, he's also ministering to federal soldiers in the hospitals, uh, to all the freed black men who had nowhere to go, they went into what was called corrals. And so he was ministering to all groups of people, all, all vari- a whole variety of people in Vicksburg. Yeah, it, it's interesting you were, you were talking about how he's ministering to all types of people from all different walks of life, different races. Uh, but he did begin the war as a unionist, but he does turn into a secessionist, right? Well, he believed that the the rebellion might have been legal. He was a little confused on that. And if it was, and they set up a legal government, they were collecting taxes and uh, doing all the civic duties, then his belief was that as a citizen, you support the local government. 
So he was hoping that there was no war in the first place. He was a unionist. But when the Confederacy set up its own stable government, he believed his first loyalty was to the people of the area in which he was bishop. Oh, so he's looking at it from a logical standpoint and wanting to support those he is closest to and those he is serving. Yes, sir. Okay, I see. That makes perfect sense. So, he, But one thing I was reading the book, and it was kind of funny because uh, a little bit pulling the curtain back on my own personal life, I actually used to uh, work in the church, in in the Methodist church and, uh, and in another church as well. And I know some of the things that go on, you know, with parishioners and things of that nature. Uh, so even during the war, there are people upset about, you know, mundane things, such as there's a woman wanting to pull her child from the church. And there right. was a teacher yeah. wandering off to see a burning building. And uh, there's a sense that in war, uh, there is this new type of normal that is setting in. Uh, for these people where there are still people upset maybe about little things in the church they really shouldn't be upset about while all the other world around them is falling apart. And Right, yes, sir. And that's just, you know, did you come across any more stories like that? I think those two are pretty uh, typical of a a number of people. Life, Life went on. He tried to restore as much normalcy as possible, even in the midst of war. And again, I think that's one of the things that... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, again and again, you see, you know, throughout the book, he's performing different, he's he's performing baptisms, he's performing last rites to soldiers and to people who are dying of, of you know, natural causes and different causes. He's, you know, comforting people in all types of different situations. It's a, he really is an amazing person to read about. Even substitute teaching, teaching Latin. At one time, he was even babysitting a parishioner's kids while the parishioner had to run from the federals. So yeah, he had a whole variety of hats, wore a lot of different hats. And yeah. not to mention, he's bishop of the entire state of Mississippi. So he's got all his ecclesiastical duties, but he's also got all these practical things. He was also the bookkeeper for the diocese. His energy was really pretty amazing. Yeah, and he, he I mean, you've said it later, he goes on to Cincinnati, and he, you would think this would drain his energy so much he wouldn't survive much longer after right. the war, but he lives into 1904. Right, sir. And I stopped in 1865, but he was bishop in the, during the yellow fever epidemics in the 1870s in Mississippi. And there's one story that's not in the book, but he even read his own obituary one day. They had some other priests come in there and give him last rites. There's no question he was going to be dead, wouldn't survive the night. He wakes up in the morning and reads his own obituary, survives it, and lives another 30 years or so, energetic until the end. Oh, I hope people said nice things about him. <laughs> I assume they did. He was a pretty beloved bishop. Well, that's going to make you feel good if you read your own obituary and it was well-written and people liked you. Right. Yeah. But I think you know, that was a Mark Twain story, wasn't it? Huckleberry Finn or Tom yeah. Sawyer? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Didn't Tom Sawyer go to his own funeral? Yeah, I think that was yeah, it. Yeah, hiding in the attic or something. Yeah, I think that was it. In Mississippi, of all places. So, or is it Missouri? That was Missouri. Along the Mississippi. Yeah, along the Mississippi River. So, uh, you know, he didn't just have parishioners, I was reading your book, um, in the war, but he also had priests that served under him who served as chaplains as well. And I really enjoyed reading about the story of the 16th Mississippi and their chaplain. And it's a very moving chapter in the book. How was the Civil War chaplain's duty different from the day-to-day duties of his peacetime uh, life? 
oh, just the death every day. Could be uh, dozens of people, could be hundreds. And a lot of people think war is fighting and, and action. The typical day of a soldier is sitting down, uh, cooking food, cleaning your clothes, pitching a tent. They fought relatively few battles. Uh, one of the things that surprised me reading all these soldiers' journals was how boring it was, how homesick everybody got. And the uh, Catholic chaplains during the Civil War were not attached to particular units because Bishop Elder wanted his priests to be able to roam from unit to unit and help uh, because Catholics were broken down and spread out through, throughout the army too. And he wanted his chaplains to be able to reach all of them. So Father Bohem was never officially a member of the 16th, but he marched with them during that last month of his life. Yeah, and he just—it sounds like he just gave. You know, he 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 get he gives out. It's it's a very moving story, and the whole story of the 16th is uh, they were there at almost every major battle in the East, even though they were yeah, you name, from the West. Yeah, you name a battle, and there's a nine in ten chance they were there. Or you know, and they everything paid, was they left of the them. Price. Yeah, they paid the price for it too. Very few came home. All right, so Vicksburg, you know, you have western Mississippi basically falls. Um, east Mississippi hung, hangs on for a while in the east. Um, so, but life, what is life like after the capitulation in western Mississippi? Um, what's it going to be like is, you know, what's it going to be like for the bishop to try to get food, not just for his flock, but for other people? What's what's the condition of the population um, like, and how does this affect the bishop? Oh, it's absolute destitution, uh, extreme poverty. The federal government stayed in there for another 10 or 12 years during Reconstruction, so they did set up a stable working government, but the people themselves were just entirely impoverished. So I was reading the book, and I was just, how is he, he didn't seem like he was what we would consider to be a racist in a way or anything of that nature. He seemed like he had an open heart for I guess what you would call what we would say, you know, what we'd hear you know, our mothers or whoever say, all of God's creatures. Everyone had a place, it seemed like, with him. Yeah, I think he saw people's souls. I think he saw that as the his ultimate end. As a pastor, his job was to administer the sacraments. Uh, politics came secondary. You deal with people because they're people. You minister to people. You visit the hospitals because they're persons. It didn't matter their wealth, whether they were orphans or not, or white or black, or uh, Union or Confederate. And what is Special Order 31? He was ordered to include a prayer for Abraham Lincoln in the Mass. Uh, but the Catholic Mass is liturgical, and there was, and so he said, no, he wasn't going to do that. There wasn't, the state didn't have the right to dictate to the church what prayers were going to be said during Mass. And so he refused to say the prayer for Abraham Lincoln. He ends up getting arrested and sent into exile or house arrest over in Louisiana, just across the river. Eventually, he ends up getting recalled, but but he spent uh, some time in a prison or a house arrest in Louisiana. And was that him making a political? Because, you know, he doesn't, We've just, you know, established that he wasn't a political person, uh, that he wanted to keep that separate. So was that him, his way of saying, I want to keep politics out of the church? I believe so, yeah. He said the church transcends politics. Yeah. It's the old King Henry VIII and, and Thomas More debate. Uh, it's the history of the Catholic Church going back to Constantine. 
the church needs to be independent of, of politics. Yeah. Elder felt very strongly about that, that he was willing to go to prison for it. Yeah. And we hear, you know, even in churches today that it's good, you know, no matter what the party to pray for the president, but it's a whole thing altogether if the government orders you to pray for somebody. I think that was his problem. He also, he saw Mississippi as an occupied state at that time. It wasn't conquered yet because they had never surrendered. He was worried that if the Confederates did mount a counterattack and Mississippi was freed, he would have alienated the people of his diocese by offering prayers for Abraham Lincoln, an occupier, rather than a conqueror. Yeah, it's a, it's hard for us to imagine now because we you know we we're looking at this in a 21st century lens. Sometimes when we think about um, you know Mississippi being a former Confederate state, but it's you know if you're looking at it from the also the civilian standpoint, you know there's buildings burned, there's businesses that have been burned, uh, and there's people who were there too who really didn't as as far as they saw it, they were riding their fence in a way, and they didn't really has you know have a dog in the fight, and now you know they were being treated like they were enemy combatants, and it's I think right. it's L. P. Hartley who said the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. Uh, they were living in a war-torn community, in a war-torn state. And so you're right, yeah. he had to be careful. Yeah, he recognized, I think it's an old St. Augustine quote, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Mm-hmm. And his job as a pastor was to deal with all persons, sinners included. And so he tried to just uh, avoid politics, just go out there and give the sacrament to, like I said, a whole variety of people. And when the Federals came in and they conquered Natchez, uh, when Natchez fell pretty pretty easily, he was in the Federal hospitals almost every day. He went into the black camps with the freedmen almost every day, doing hospital duty, administering the sacraments. Do you know what called him into the ministry? Yeah, just the process of discernment in his late teens and early 20s. Uh, he came from a very Catholic family in Maryland, some of the first settlers in the colony. And he always thought he might have a vocation. One of his sisters did. She became a, a nun, and he and she were pretty close. And he was he was torn up until his, until he decided to enter the seminary. But then he went all in. He goes over to Rome. He gets ordained a priest. And then in 1857, he was appointed to Natchez as bishop. But he always suspected that he had had a call. Yeah, and if you if uh, anybody listening, if you read the book, you're going to agree that he he did have a call, and he was even beyond the Civil War time period, the Reconstruction time period, even into the early 20th century, he carried that call on. Uh, Ryan, what do you got coming up next? Do you have another book coming up you're excited about, or any other projects coming up you're excited about? Yeah, my friend Josh Foreman and I wrote the Hidden History of Jackson and the Hidden History of the Mississippi Sound. Yep. They've already been published. And then we've got the Hidden History of New Orleans coming out February 3rd, and we're really excited about that. We think that's our best one. And then we're working on a book on Dallas history and then Classic Restaurants of Jackson. Both of those will come out in the summer or uh, winter of 2020. I'll probably be working with you on two of those, probably not the one in Dallas, but two of them. We'll probably be partnering up with you guys again on that one. Me, you, and Josh working on those again. Perfect. Yeah, we're just finishing up the final editing stage of the New Orleans one, so we're counting the days until February 3rd. My thanks to Ryan for joining me and you for listening. 
Mississippi Bishop William Henry Elder is available now at your local bookstore and at ArcadiaPublishing.com. Remember, the holiday season is fast approaching, and what better gift to give than the gift of local history? Visit our website and search out the town you live in or grew up in to discover the history of your town or your state. 